0: Welcome to Vineyard Hopkinton. As we follow Jesus together, we experience the Holy Spirit, create a multicultural community, and pursue kingdom of God justice. So let me start off by quoting Sarah. I never do this. So this is a first, right? (laughs) So last week, I didn't say that I quoted her book, but i quoted quoting her last week. This is what she said. Before every major move of God, there is typically a time of breakthrough. Breakthrough means there is a time of waiting, struggle, and enduring before victory or revival. We're finishing our series on breakthrough prayer today. And as I was thinking about today and prepping for today, that just stuck with me. That there's always a time before it actually happens. And that that time can be filled with breakthrough as well. Uh, And I think that that time before is most of our lived out realities, right? Uh, So how do we do that well? And how do we position ourselves well to get from Jesus what he has for us in those places? And so I just want to say that my hope this morning is that we're not ending a season of breakthrough, but that we're just saying, okay, Jesus, what's next? How do we keep digging in? What does it look like to live this out faithfully Uh, from this day forward. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Acts 1, or you can look in your phones. Acts chapter 1. I am going to jump all over the place in that chapter, so you might want to have it there in front of you to be able to see uh, that I'm not being a heretic and just choosing what I want to say. But Acts chapter 1 verse 12 is where I'm going to start. Here's what it says. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of half a mile. And when they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. So this is right after Jesus went up to heaven. I have no idea how that happens, by the way. You know, the whole, like, he leaves and then he's gone. And then it's so crazy looking that the disciples stand there with their mouths wide open and they're like, kind of in in shock and so then Jesus has to send an angel to tell them that they have to move which like further makes it weird and all over the place i literally i have no idea there is some parts about following jesus that i do think require a little bit of willingness to acknowledge mystery, and I think that that's one of them. I don't know if he uh, got beamed up like Scotty or he literally rose on a cloud up to the sky. Um, I hope it's not that one because that's about as weird as it could get, but uh, I don't know what was going on. But they're standing there and they see this happen and they need reminded of what Jesus has already told them that's to come next. And this is what Jesus had told them in verse 4. Don't leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift that he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So something good is going to happen, but for now, you have to wait. Yay! Favorite words of Jesus, just stay and wait. So here's who was there when Jesus did his rise into the clouds thing. The names of those who were present in verse 13 Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. That's the other Judas. Uh, They all met together and were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women and the brothers of Jesus. Then chapter two starts this way. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. So my Bible has a little note next to the word Pentecost that says that it's 50 days after Passover. 50 days after the day that Jesus was crucified. So, if my math is correct, and it usually is, thankfully, I worked in banking for a while, so if it wasn't, that would have been a problem. But there's 50 days there that we're talking about between these two events. And we're told in Acts, and at the end of John, I think, that there's 40 days that Jesus is with them. So Jesus is there for 40 of those 50, which leaves 10 days give or take a couple. Don't send me emails about my math. There are 10 days, give or take, without any knowledge of what comes next. 10 days of waiting. 10 days in that upstairs room of somebody's house in Jerusalem. We don't know who's hosting them. They were probably getting tired of hosting all these people, but 10 days of just staying there. And the upstairs room probably started to get a little hot, a little stuffy, a little uncomfortable after about day two or three, right? Because we really don't like to wait. You know, my favorite TV show, This May Shock You, is The Great British Baking Show. Yes, it's a true story. I watched it last night. It, it was great. Um, it's It's fantastic. Um, if you can't tell from the title of the show what it is, it's a baking competition, um, and it's in England. So there you go. Now you know about it. Uh, There's one baker eliminated every week. But the beautiful thing is how nice they are. They're so much nicer than we are. Like, American reality shows were mean. Like, we don't care about anybody else. It's about me winning. On the Great British Baking Show, they just sit there and they're like, oh, do you need help? Here's a little bit. Let me come over and waste my five minutes so that you can get done in time. Like, and they're so, just so friendly about it. And then uh, when they, they end, they have these like fantastic, amazing things that they've created. Um, you know, there's British humor, which I love. They have weird words for food, which makes it fun. So I have to Google things all the time. Uh, it's delightful. You know, what more could you want? Um, And the best part about it is that I do not bake at all. (laughs) Like legit, when uh, Sarah and I had been married for probably five years, and she asked me to bake some brownies. And I looked at her, and I was like, hypothetically, sure, but what do I do? She was like, you're like a 35-year-old man, and you don't know how to bake a tray of brownies. And I was like, that's exactly what I'm saying right now, yes. So what do I do? Like, I don't know, I don't know how to do this. Uh, thankfully, the box tells you everything you need to know, so I figured it out. Um, I can't read, so that was good. Uh, I buy baked goods, I eat baked goods, I do not bake baked goods. Uh, but I've learned enough to pretend like I'm an expert about baking from British baking show. For instance, I've learned about a proving drawer. Anybody know about a proving drawer? I even have researched enough that I know that like not everybody agrees on the uses of a proving drawer. So, yeah, no emails about that either because I know. I know that it's not always the best way to rise the dough. But a proving drawer is this beautiful thing that's usually on the ground in the Great British Baking Show, uh, but it's a little higher in that picture, that uh, can be heated to a a low heat that you put in your bread dough after it's all ready to go. It's this space where the dough, the yeast begins to activate, the dough begins to rise, hopefully it doubles. At least that's what they say on the show every time that they want it to be twice as big. And it's this space that they get extremely anxious Uh, in just nice little British ways. Um, I'm being so patronizing to British folks right now. It's awesome. Uh, And and while while they watch and they just think, like, I hope that it doubles in size. How long do I leave it in for? I don't know. Maybe 30 minutes, maybe an hour. And they watch as it grows. Because if you have underproofed bread, there's some issues with that. And if you have overproofed bread, there's issues with that too, right? You need it to come out just right. So the proving drawer helps you to get it to just the right spot, just the right amount of carbon dioxide that's raised out of the dough, getting it ready to bake. A spot where it's hot, where it gets just right. Picture that upstairs room. By the time that Acts 2 comes around, there's 120-ish people sitting in that room. That's awkward. If all of us were in a room about, I don't know, a third of this size, we would be uncomfortable. It wouldn't be that great. The anxiety has risen the longer that they're there. They're wondering what God's going to do, when he's going to follow through with the things that he's told them. When they were following Jesus, they were constantly on the move, and now they have to stay in one spot, and they don't have any fidget toys. Like, they're just not sure what comes next. They're praying, they're asking God, but they're stuck in that room. Jesus' followers didn't realize it, but I think they needed a little bit of time in the proving drawer before they were ready to go out. Because there's always a time of waiting and struggle before spiritual movements. There's always a little bit of space. You know, until a couple of years ago when I started binge-watching Great British Baking Show, I knew nothing about baking, but I did know about history because I like history. So let me tell you about some revivals that happened in the early 1900s, all kind of around the same time, starting around 1903 to 1904. So in 1904, there was a revival that started in Wales, England, that really started 10 years before with a teenager who came to know Jesus at 13, had a, uh, kind of a, a prophetic word that 100,000 people were going to come to know Jesus, and he prayed about it for a decade. If you're a 13-year-old, you get a word like that and you keep praying about it, that's a pretty amazing thing. But he stuck with them. And he kept praying and he kept praying. His name was Evan Roberts. And he just believed that that's what God was going to do. So you fast forward to when he's about 25, 26. And he's a uh, kind of a youth pastor at that point. And he's leading a, a youth group event, a service on October 31st, 1904. And during that service, they just started praying for the Holy Spirit to come. And they just, like, got stuck. And they didn't go anywhere. And the youth group event went till about 3 a.m., which probably the parents were calling and wondering what was going on. 3 a.m., they're just praying and asking God to come. And something happened. And all of a sudden, something kind of blew up in that church that then spread. They started having services every day for three weeks after that night. Uh, and then it spread throughout Wales over the next two and a half years. Guess how many people that they like marked down names? How many people came to know Jesus during those two, two and a half years? 100,000 people. In 1903, there was a meeting of pastors and missionaries in Korea. And during it, there was one missionary who got up and said that he needed to confess his own frustration with God for not answering his prayers in the way that he wanted, and his pride in the way that he tried to take control. The other pastors in the room started to get up and confess what was going on in their lives too. And it slowly trickled out to their churches. Three years later, in 1907, they all gather back together again. And what one pastor called a sound like rushing water started to fill the room. 1907, this prayer meeting with people just weeping and confessing their sin and crying out to Jesus for him to come. 1,500 Korean pastors just on their faces. They left that place, and over the next five years, 80,000 people started following Jesus there was a missionary to china who was at one of those early meetings and in 1907 and when he returned to china it stuck with him that place of repentance and asking god to move and so he went back to china and he started talking about this at the churches that he was going to and encouraging people to repent and they started repenting in like crazy awkward ways There were pastors that started admitting to bribes in the service, bribes that they had taken from town officials. There were church leaders who started confessing their affairs right in the middle of the service. Many people, there were stories of people leaving the church to go find the people that they had taken stuff from, that they had abused, that they had done wrong to, to go and repent and apologize for the things that they had done wrong. Over the course of the next several years, thousands of people started following Jesus throughout China. In 1905, there was a woman named Pandita Ramabi who began a prayer circle for a revival in India, in Mumbai, India. This prayer circle, she, the, the thing that I love about her is that she refused to allow there to be any uh, accumulation of numbers. She said, what God wants to do, God wants to do. And so there's, there's no real numbers of what all, how many people came to know Jesus in India through this. But her prayer circle started with 250 girls and young women. And within two months, they had 1,200 people that knew Jesus. And then those people went out in pairs throughout all of India, sharing the good news of Jesus, and thousands more started to follow In 1906, all within the same time, guys, there was a small storefront church in Azusa Street in Los Angeles, California, and they invited a man named William Seymour to come and to preach. He was black. A lot of the church was white. You didn't do that back then. But he stood up, and he began to preach, and he asked the Holy Spirit to fall, and the Holy Spirit fell, and services started happening all the time there, that then began to spread. And the Pentecostal revivals that started out of that have led literally millions of people over the last hundred years to know Jesus. Before the revivals in Wales, Korea, China, India, and the U.S., people were on their knees crying out to Jesus for him to come and to move. Sometimes for a decade. Asking him to come and to pour himself out, to move in miraculous ways. And I bet they got frustrated. Because they didn't realize when they started praying that it was going to take so long. But then look what happened when they came out at the right time. They were in the proving drawer and they just needed to let the yeast rise a little bit. Here's what happens in the proving drawer, 2 Corinthians 3. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. If we spend time with Jesus, who brings freedom, then we'll be changed. But it takes a willingness to stay and not to run away. Ten days in that upstairs room. Ten days because the disciples still needed a little bit of time. And they were all there. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, the other James, the other Simon, the other Judas, along with Matthew, Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. You know who always comes first in these lists, for better or for worse? Peter. You know, and I've heard it so many times. People say, I connect with Peter. Like, I love Peter. I feel like I could be a Peter. You know, like, the, he, he messes up. He says stupid stuff. I say stupid stuff. You know, like, and, and I love Peter, too. But we probably would like Bartholomew or the other James or the other Judas just as much. We just don't know any of their story, right? But Peter, we know all about Peter's story. Do you know Peter was married? Which in their culture meant that he was probably about a decade older than everybody else sitting at the table following Jesus. Because men usually got married at about 25 to 30 in their culture. Everybody else was a teenager. He's married. He's 25 to 30, which means he's been doing his career as a fisherman for 10 to 15 years. He's settled in life, and then Jesus comes and interrupts everything. Guys, how would your wife like it if some guy came up and told you that you needed to leave your house and go follow him and you know, go infinitely amounts of time somewhere else, it would not go very well. I'm sure it created some issues. This guy was settled in his life. He wasn't like everybody else. He wasn't just flexible like everybody else. And you could kind of see that, that Peter's a little bit older by the moves that he makes. When Jesus asks, who do people say I am? The other disciples are very willing to answer. When Jesus says, who do you say I am? One guy answers, Peter. And he says exactly who he thinks that he is. Because a 28-year-old is probably a little bit more willing to risk than an 18-year-old, right? He's like, whatever, I don't have much to lose at this point. So he says, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. When Jesus is walking on water in a storm, which is again, mystery, uh, it's Peter who recognizes him and calls out. It's Peter who basically says, if I could read between the lines, this is what I think Peter is saying. Hey, Jesus, I know boats. I know storms. And I see what's happening here. I'm going to die one way or another. This is not going to end well for me. This storm's pretty bad. But you're walking on water, and I already said that you're the Messiah. So I'm already in. So hey, you're a little bit more steady than I am. Call me out, and I'll go. And he gets out of the boat, and he starts to walk. Then when Jesus is arrested, it's like all of that falls away. And Peter is standing outside the place where he's being tried. And he's, he's being recognized, and he hates it. And so people keep coming up to him and asking, like, hey, you're with Jesus. And he's like, no, I'm not. And then another person comes up, hey, you're with Jesus. No, I'm not. Another person, I literally saw you with Jesus one hour ago. And Peter goes, must be my twin. It's not me. I don't know what's going on. Three times. And then Jesus dies. And then they're all together. And they hear that the tomb's empty. And Peter and John get up and start running immediately to go find out what's going on. And John beats him there because he's 10 years younger than Peter is. (laughs) But like a guy 10 years younger, he writes about it because he's got to brag and tell everybody that he beat the old man to the tomb. But Peter's got to see what's going on. And at that point, Peter does what he's always done for his entire life. He goes fishing again. Because what else is he going to do? He's pretty settled, right? But Jesus finds him. And he calls to him. And he does another miracle when Peter's on that boat doing the last thing that he should probably be doing. And it happens. And as soon as it happens, Peter recognizes Jesus. And once again, he doesn't wait for the stupid boat to get to the dock. He jumps out. And he starts to swim and he just goes towards Jesus. And when he reaches Jesus, he's restored in a powerful and humble way. And after all of this, Peter still has to spend 10 days in the upstairs room with everybody else. And I bet when he's sitting in that upstairs room, he really wanted to go fishing. What does it look like for you when you want to go fishing? What do you do when life gets hard? When you're tired of waiting on God to reply or to move? What do you do when you're frustrated with the way that God's doing things? What do you do when you start to wonder if he's even real? Because you've tried this church thing and it doesn't seem like anything's going on. And you're just kind of sick of sitting around going through the same old, same old. What do you do then? What's your fishing? Uh, what do I do? Good question. Uh, I like change. I'm weird like that. And so I often start to daydream about how I could avoid what it is that's going on and what I could do instead. Uh, I. Sometimes we'll just do the things that I can do for work that don't require any input from Jesus. The stuff I could just go do and make myself feel like I'm moving the ball forward, even if I'm not really. Most of what I do, though, is I stick my head in a kind of entertainment loop uh, of Netflix or starting a new book or just scrolling through hours of endless sports trivia and steps. Anything to avoid dealing with what I'm frustrated with. What do you do when it gets too hot in the proving drawer and you're just tired of sitting there? Do you stop praying and start working? Do you take a break from small group, from community for a couple of weeks And call it a mental health break. Instead of handing over control to Jesus, do you just allow yourself to get even deeper enmeshed in the messiness of somebody else's life? Instead of praying about the health issue, do you allow yourself to go down the WebMD trail for hours and hours and just let yourself get sucked into the analytics of your brain? because it's essentially about control, right? And in order, though, to give Jesus control, you have to be willing to acknowledge who Jesus actually is. Jesus is generous, but he's not Santa, and he's not just going to give you what you want when you want it. Thankfully, Jesus also isn't a dictator, and he doesn't cut you off if you do the wrong thing once or twice. And I'm really grateful that Jesus is not just some Buddha statue sitting in the corner looking extremely friendly, uh, but perfectly pointless. Who is Jesus? He's alive, and he's kind, and he's generous, and he has a plan. And we can opt out of his plan, but if we opt out of his plan, we're opting out of the whole thing. We don't get to pick and choose which parts we like. We can't just say, I want in here and out there. And his plan isn't set by what we want and by the timing that we want it to be. But if we're willing to stick with it, it's better than anything we could have attempted. The disciples still needed 10 days in the upper room after three and a half years with Jesus. And during those 10 days, Peter didn't go fishing. He stayed. He waited. He prayed. Because at this point, he knew who Jesus was. And when we see him next, everything's different. Listen to this. In Acts 2, verse 1. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place, and suddenly there was a sound from heaven, like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house, and then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. And then Peter stepped forward and shouted to the crowd. "When control's given up, things can begin to happen." In Jerusalem, on Pentecost, a group of former fishermen and Jesus followers were changed and the world was never the same. Fire came and all of a sudden Peter became a a very polished public speaker out of nowhere. And because when your time in the proving drawer is done, Jesus lets you know. And it's pretty obvious to everybody else. Friends, as this series ends, we can go back to the status quo. We could say things about this series like that was encouraging or if you don't like it, you could say, well, I guess we got to talk through the whole Bible um, or well, I had hoped that God would do more or we can stay and we can allow Jesus to continue to do what he's already Up to. Because what if there's more? Martin Lloyd Jones says every revival is a repetition of Pentecost. And it's the greatest need of the church at this present hour. He said that, I don't know, 70 years ago or something? But it's still true. What if outbreaks of the Holy Spirit, of the presence of Jesus, started happening in Russia and the Ukraine? What if outbreaks of the Holy Spirit started happening in Israel and the Gaza? What if outbreaks of the Holy Spirit started happening here in 84 South Street in Hopkinton, Massachusetts? Are we willing to keep praying, come Holy Spirit, and not give up? You know, praying last night, I felt like there were some of us who were coming who were frustrated. We're frustrated because we've done the church thing and it doesn't feel like anything's happening. We're frustrated because we feel like we've prayed for a long time and nothing's changed. Because we've been trying to experience Jesus and we feel like there's just crickets. Because we felt like we had big dreams and our current reality is not what we asked for. And I felt like Jesus was saying, if we want a Peter transformation, if we want a move of Jesus, if we want a breakthrough, what's required is that we stay, that we keep praying, that we don't limit our time with Jesus to one hour a week or five minutes a day, that we waste time in the presence of Jesus, and that we stop trying to be in the driver's seat because he's here and he wants to move, but we have to stay in his presence.